All right, James chapter number 3 tonight, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 13. Uh, James begins this portion with a question. He says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Well, the lesson that we uh, are going to look at tonight, we're looking at part two of, uh, of our sixth, sixth lesson. And uh, each of these lessons has taken up a theme uh, in relation to the Christian's life, the Christian and his Bible, the Christian and his battles, and so on and so forth. Well, last week we started this study on the Christian and his behavior. And this study is basically divided into three categories. Uh, the first, and we looked at this last, uh, last night, we, or last week, uh, is sin in the life of the believer revealed. And we spent a lot of time, in fact the entirety of it last week, talking about sin in the mouth, meaning our tongue, our words, our conversation, the, the way we communicate with one another. Uh, and then tonight, with the Lord's help, we're going to look at sin in the mind, and that's what we've just read over. And uh, then we'll spend a little time talking about sin in the members, meaning our, our appendages, our actions, our behavior. Uh, and then we'll look at sin in the life resisted and then finally sin in the life repudiated. So last week we talked about sin in the mouth. But in the verses that we've read tonight, James takes up the topic, the theme of sin in the mind. Uh, how many of you know this to be true, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh? Whenever the Bible talks about the heart, and it's using it in relation talking about our, our passions, our desires, our, uh, our focus, our affections, our aspirations, it's not talking about the fleshy organ that, that, that pumps blood throughout our bodies, but it's figurative language. And so when the Bible talks about the heart and the mind, often those two terms are synonymous and interchangeable. Now, there can be an application made to the heart dealing with the seat of emotions and the mind being the seat of intellect. But when we talk about those two terms and when they are interchangeable, I think we can talk about uh, our consciousness, our thought life, our, our, our uh, emotions as well as our intellect. And everything that we say and everything that we do is birthed first in our heart and in our mind. Uh, there, there's never been anybody do anything uh, that God's going to judge them for, I'll say it that way, uh, that did not first uh, arise up in their heart and in their mind. So it's fitting that James, after he's talked about the tongue and, and our conversation, our words, how, what we say to each other, how we communicate to each other, that he would go then to speaking about sin in the mind. I think that often our thought life is one of the most unregulated areas of our life. Uh, there's a lot of people that would never say something or do something, but they'll think that very thing. Now, let me go ahead and say to you before I even get into the teaching, there are times, at least in my experience and probably in yours as well, when it's almost as though a thought will just will just insert itself into my mind. I've, I've not sought after it. I've not tried to entertain it. But it'll just all of a sudden appear, a lustful thought or a violent thought, a hateful thought, a prideful thought, whatever it might be. It's like it just appears in, in, in the mind. 
I don't think it's a sin when a, a, a uh, evil thought occurs to you, but I do believe it is a sin when we entertain that thought, when we focus on that thought and give it a place in our mind and in our focus. And so James is going to talk about sin in the mind. He's going to talk about it by talking about two different things. He's going to talk about earthly wisdom, and he's going to talk about heavenly wisdom. He begins by asking a question, and uh, these are the two basic overall themes of this passage of Scripture. He talks first off in verses 13 and 14 about wisdom and its course. In other words, how wisdom behaves, what wisdom looks like. You know, Christ said that wisdom is justified of her children. In other words, if a person is wise, then they're going to live that way, they're going to behave that way. Uh, One great philosopher said it this way, stupid is as stupid does. Amen. So, uh, you know, he's talking about wisdom and its course. And then he's going to talk about wisdom and its source of these two different types of wisdom. So he begins by talking about the mainstream of wise behavior. He says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? This is a rhetorical question. He's not necessarily asking for a raise of hands. But I think most of us would probably say to some extent or, or, or you know, greater or lesser, we'd say, well, I believe I'm wise. Uh, you know, we certainly would say I'm wiser than some. And uh, we would all like to think that we are wise individuals, that we exercise ourselves in wisdom. Look at what James says. He says, if that's you, if you believe yourself to be wise, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. In this passage, the word show is emphatic. In other words, James is saying, you say that you're wise, then show it. Show it. In other words, just as he has described that faith will express itself through works, in the same way wisdom will express itself through works. A person can talk about being wise all day long, but if they make foolish decisions, then whatever wisdom they have is meaningless. If we really want to, and and, and this gets to the heart of what wisdom is. You might say, preacher, what is wisdom? Wisdom is divine knowledge, divine truth, rightfully, dutifully, obediently applied. Uh, Some of the smartest people in this world behave in some of the dumbest ways. And they have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. The believer, because he's indwelt by the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God can make application of divine truth as our heart is surrendered unto him, we have a, a repository of wisdom available to us. So we ought to take divine truth and not just memorize it, not just try to apprehend it. uh, But like Paul said, if that I may apprehend that which apprehended me, uh, we don't need to just apprehend it. It needs to apprehend us. Wisdom needs to gain a hold on our lives. So James says if a person is, is wise, they're going to show it. How are they going to show it? Out of a good conversation. And that word conversation, I know we've been talking about the tongue in chapter number three, but it's not confined just to the words that we speak. In fact, that word encompasses all of a person's lifestyle, their behavior, their mannerisms, their spirit, and their actions. He says, let him show out of a good conversation his works, and then he uses this term, with meekness of wisdom. He's already used this term weakness back in chapter number one when he said that we are to receive uh, the engrafted word with meekness. And that's not an accident. It takes meekness to receive the Word of God. It takes meekness to apply the Word of God. Meekness is, is uh, the, the gentle, spiritual control of the individual. It is placing ourselves under the leadership and guidance of the Spirit of God and receiving instruction in a humble manner. And he says that's the same spirit, the same attitude with which we need to live our lives. 
We're to receive the Word of God in the fear of God. It's one of the things that's wrong in, in pulpits and churches today uh, and society at large is there's no fear of God anymore. And when we talk about fear of God, we're not talking about terror, but we're talking about reverence, uh, having a respect for the Word of God. When we hear the Word of God, we ought to receive it in, in respectful, reverential fear. Well, in the same way, when we conduct ourselves, we ought to conduct ourselves the same way. When we listen to a message, we respond for a number of reasons. We know it's good for us. We know that it'll help us in our life. But one of the reasons that most of us will receive the truth of the Word of God when it's preached is because we know we're going to be held accountable for it one day. We know that every, listen, no idle word falls to the ground. God's going to bring every idle word into judgment. And uh, listen to a preacher calling his sermons idle words. Amen. But, uh, you know, everything that we've done, every sermon you've ever heard, you're going to be judged in light of. Well, in the same way, everything you do, you're going to be judged in light of. And, and we, ought to, we ought to labor with the same meekness with which we listen. So he gives the mainstream of wise behavior. Then he shows the muddy stream of wicked behavior in verse number 14. He says, but. In other words, if you're wise, people are going to know it because you're going to live in a wise manner and make wise decisions. And the Word of God is going to be the the governor of your soul and of your action. It's going to govern not only your spirit, but your steps. But on the other side of things, this is what it looks like when a person doesn't have wise behavior. And he names four things. The first thing he names is that that person, he describes that they will have a bitter spirit. He says, but if you have bitter envying. Bitter envying. Now, to envy something is to desire that you have something another has and that they not have it. One of the things I think that has been miscommunicated when you define envying is we have sort of let, let on like envying and covetousness is merely wanting something that someone else has. Hey, listen, I, I see people all the time. They drive nice cars. I'd like to have a car, a car like what they drive. I see people in nice clothes. I'd like to have clothes as nice as they have. But envying is when we look at it and we say, I want what they have and I don't want them to have it. And this, by the way, is whenever uh, God gives a commandment in the Old Testament, he talks about coveting, coveting your neighbor's wife, coveting your neighbor's donkey. If you have your neighbor's wife, your neighbor does not have his wife. If you have your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor does not have his donkey. So envying and covetousness is not just desiring things, but it's desiring things at the expense of others. And that's, oh yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. That's part of the reason I have such an issue with socialism. It's a, it's a, it's a political philosophy based on the idea of covetousness and envy. Not just that I want what they have, but I want it and I don't want them to have it. And there's never been a political philosophy or system that has lifted the world out of abject poverty the way that free market capitalism has done. Uh, the entire world has been elevated, much of it, out of what is poverty. And what today is called poverty would have been called splendor 200 years ago. And still yet, there's people that clamor to want to take away what belongs to other people, not because they're living bad lives. You remember whenever that, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. You remember, I don't know if I'm arguing with me or the Lord, but I'm, I'm going to say it and I'll deal with the consequences later. You remember back when the 1%, the marching on Wall Street, the Occupy, here's these kids out there marching against all these big, you know, fat cash of bourgeois capitalism with their $700 iPhones taking pictures. That's what covetousness looks like. They're not hurting. They're not, hey, listen, they obviously aren't having to work for a living. They're not hurting, but they just despise someone else having something that they cannot have. 
And it's born out of resentment. Well, he couples bitter envying together. And enviousness will make you bitter. If you spend your time focusing on what others have that you don't have, pretty soon you'll grow to resent them for it. And it's an unwise thing. There wasn't a single one of those young, and it wasn't just young people, but it was predominantly. There wasn't a single one of those young people that found peace on the picket line. That was a waste of their time. Not just a waste of everybody else, a waste of their time. It was foolish. Didn't help them. Didn't make them any richer. Didn't elevate them out of the situation that they perceived themselves to be in. It was an unwise thing. It's unwise to yield to bitter envying. And he talks about a belligerent spirit. He says this, and strife. Strife in your hearts. Uh, the idea behind this word is the exaltation of self, putting self on the throne. Uh, partisanism, factions would be another uh, way of describing it. In other words, busting things up and seeing it as a you versus them thing. And there are people that live their lives that way. It's tragic. It's foolish. Uh, listen, if somebody's your enemy, so be it. But don't make enemies out of people that ain't your enemies. I, I saw a, a, an article today. I didn't read it. I, I did something I hate, which is people going off of headlines instead of reading the article. But I, just, I didn't have time to read it. But I thought it was a pretty good description. I think the headline is true. It made the statement that said, if you turn off the news, America looks like a pretty wonderful place. And it's true. If you quit watching the news and just interact with people, we are not as divided as they would have us think we are. And it's a divide-and-conquer mentality. That's the purpose behind it. You'll see it on both sides of the aisle. But the reality is this. When you live life as though here's me and there's the rest of the world and you play this victimhood game of, you know, it's me against everyone else, that's foolish. Because what's going to happen is, is like narcissists, you're going to stare into the water long enough until you finally just fall in and drown. It's not beneficial. It's not helpful. It's a foolish decision. Many speaks of a boastful spirit. He says, glory not. In other words, if you're living this way, you ought not be proud of it. And the unwise man, the foolish man, is boastful in his foolishness. Uh, the writer of Proverbs goes down a big, long line of, of characteristics about fools. And, you know, much of the book of Proverbs is occupied with that, with talking about the wise man and the fool, the wise man and the fool, the wise man and the fool. And uh, the writer of the book of Proverbs, and I don't have the reference right in front of me, I can look at it and, and give it to you later. He goes down a big long list of how wretched and reprehensible a fool is. Talks about how they won't receive instruction, you can beat them with whips and they won't listen to you, they won't hear anything, that, uh, you know, they, they won't work, they won't do things that benefit themselves. And it goes down this big long line of all these horrible things that a foolish person is and does. And then it says this, if you see a man that's wise in his own conceit, there's more hope of a fool than of him. Now, that's a scary thought. A person that's prideful and is unwilling to allow for the fact that they could be wrong about something, that will not permit correction in their life in any way, shape, fashion, or form, there is more hope of a fool than of that person. With all that the Bible says about fools, that person is in worse shape because they're glorying in their foolishness. One of the great sickening elements of much of society today is not just that we are so sinful but that people are so proud of it. What used to be done under cover of darkness, what used to be whispered is now shouted, and this is foolish behavior. And then he describes what is the natural result of it, which is a blind spirit. He says, if you're like this, then glory not and lie not against the truth. 
Foolishness will blind you. It will make you unable to see the foolishness of your own decision. This is the reason that you'll see sometimes in people's lives when they, when they set foot down a foolish pathway. And you're waiting any moment for them to wake up. You know, and tragedy after tragedy will happen. I mean, chicken after chicken will come home to roost and you'll think, man, surely they're going to wake up. But here's the reality. They can't permit themselves to wake up because they're too invested in it with the way they've lived their lives. Uh, They're not going to wake up. They're going to have to be broken the same way that the prodigal son was. Once he realized he had nothing, then he came to himself. But as long as he thought he had something, he was too invested in his pride and in his decision to be willing to turn around and go to his father's house. After all, he wasn't going to apologize to him. It wasn't until he was broken that he would come back home. It wasn't until everything was ripped away from him because he had deceived himself. So he talks about uh, wisdom and its course. And then he talks about wisdom and its source. Look at verse 15. He says, this wisdom, talking about The wisdom he's described, which is a lack of wisdom, it is a false wisdom, it is an empty wisdom, in verse 14. This wisdom, he says, descendeth not from above, but is, and he calls it three things. He says it is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Human wisdom, the source of it, its outflow is described as coming from three places. First, he describes a secular source. He says it is earthly. It is earthly. The wisdom of the world is born only out of the best philosophies, logic, and ideals of a completely broken, sin-fallen society. The best the world has to offer in its intellect and ideals comes from people that many of them can't even tie their shoes. Most of the philosophers, the scientists, and there's a lot of brilliant people. I'm not trying to just berate people that are in maybe a different social uh, standing than what I am or what you are. I'm not, they, they'd be easy targets. That's not what I'm trying to do. But you know this to be so that you can read it in news articles. You can see it in, in uh, you know, reading scientific studies. There was just an article came out just back of this of three uh, confessed liberal scientists that were so sickened by the absurdity of what was coming out in scientific journals, that they made it their mission to sit down and just start writing fake, absurd scientific reports to see if they could get them published. I mean, absurd, absurd things. Some of my, the, they're too graphic for me to describe, but things about dogs being racist, you know, and just, I mean, just absurd, foolish things. And guess what? Most of them got published. Several of them got awards. Now, listen, I, again, I'm not trying to... They're, they're, it's an easy target when it's somebody that's, that's not like you to just say negative things about them. And I'm not trying to do that, but I am saying this, that what the world offers forth as wisdom is foolishness at its very core. The world looks at... And Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians, that God has brought to naught the wisdom of this world. He says, where's the scribe? Where, where's the wise man of this world? And you can look at the best that this world has to offer. The greatest philosophers, the great minds throughout human history. And when James writes this, you've got to remember the, the Greek thinkers, they had had their day. The Eastern uh, religions and mysticism had had its chance. He was not writing this in blindness. He wasn't writing this in ignorance. Uh, some of the great philosophies throughout human history had already run their course. And James says, I've looked at them and they're bankrupt. 
They cannot provide wisdom to the human soul. He describes them as earthly. It's secular source. And then he says this, that they are sensual. He says they have a sensual source to them. The idea behind being sensual, uh, the, the word behind it is fascinating. It, it, it's uh, sukot or sukaikos is the way that it's described. Uh, but it, it, it implies the physical impulses of a person. It's where we get our word psyche from. But it's more than just something that is existential. It's more than just metaphysical. It's more than just what a person thinks. It describes man in his sin-fallen condition, being driven by his impulses and by his lusts. And the wisdom of this world, no matter how they seek to beautify it, at the end of the day, you boil it down, and most of it is designed just to satisfy the most base and the most vulgar impulses of humanity. Listen, if there was ever a time that this ought to ring true, it's right now. There's laws being written all over this land, all over this country, all over the world that are enshrining in law things that are just depraved, wicked, evil, immoral. Everybody was up in arms. The, the Trump administration said that they were going to come out with guidelines. It's funny, man. The, the American people, most of them have the memory of a goldfish. I remember like three years ago when the Obama administration came out with guidelines saying they were going to change all the transgender stuff with the bathrooms and all that. Do you remember that? And Target got into big trouble and everybody boycotted them. That was like 30 minutes ago that all that happened. And so the Trump administration comes out and says, we're going to stop all this nonsense. No, we're going to say that a person, that their gender is defined by their biological makeup. Right? If ever there's anything we ought to all be able to agree on... <laughs> It's that. If we can't agree on that, we are broken in a truly meaningful way. And everybody lost their minds. Oh, they're going to legislate transgender people out of existence. Well, first off, there's no such thing. But secondly, even if there was, they're losing their minds at the fact that anybody would have nerve enough to say, a person that's born a man stays a man, a person that's born a woman stays a woman. They're trying to legislate and enshrine in law the most base, deplorable, vile things. Talking vile things. That's where human wisdom leads. You know why? Because that's where human wisdom begins. When human wisdom begins with a stated goal and desire of satisfying the lust of our flesh, should it surprise us when it bears and brings forth corruption? Of course it shouldn't. James says they're sensual. And then he describes it as having a satanic Source. He says it's devilish. It's interesting that the first use of the word wise in the Bible is associated with Satan. In the Garden of Eden, Satan, of course, is called subtle. But the first use of it is when they, when uh, the Bible says that Eve, when she saw that the fruit was to be desired to make one wise. First use of the word wise in your Bible. And it's associated with the deception that Satan perpetrated upon Adam and upon Eve. Ever since that day, Satan has sought to deceive people with false wisdom. And one of the hardest people in the world to reach is somebody that believes they are intellectual, that believes they are wise, that believes they are smart, but they are completely absent of divine truth. Uh, Satan, listen, it's not stupidity that Satan uses exclusively. He also uses intellect. And I'm not against people being smart. I wish everybody was a lot smarter. Amen? I wish I was a lot smarter. If I was as smart as you are, there's no telling what we'd get together and do. 
I'm not against it. I'm not against intellect. I'm not against educating yourself. But I am saying this, that when it is when it is absent of divine truth, when it is absent of submission to the will, wisdom, and word of God, then it has satanic results. Satan uses it to ensnare people. James says that kind of wisdom comes from those three places. And what is its outcome? In verse number 16, he says, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Can I just allow the world you're living in to be the commentary on that verse? Confusion and every evil work. The only thing society can agree on today is doing wrong. Everything else people are confused about. Everything else. That's where human wisdom leads to. It leads to unrest and ungodliness. But then he talks about the source of heavenly wisdom. Verse number 17. He says, but the wisdom that is from above. And he says a few things about it. Notice its basic characteristic. This is important. He says, is first pure. First pure. The basic characteristic, the fundamental quality of heavenly wisdom is that it is pure. It literally means something free from defilement. One commentator said it this way, and he didn't even have to clue in on it to say it this way. I think we can draw it from the text. But he said that heavenly wisdom will never condone or encourage anything impure. If you Listen, if somebody advises you to sin, their wisdom did not come from God. It came from the earth, came from themselves, came from the devil. The first quality is that it is pure, it is righteous, it is holy. Anything that elicits us or solicits us to draw closer to the world has not come from God. And it is not wise. Now that seems very, very basic. And yet Solomon in the book of Proverbs spends quite a few chapters illustrating this truth. Five times in the book of Proverbs, he gives narrative examples of wisdom, of, of these two types of wisdom, of earthly wisdom and of heavenly wisdom. And he describes a, a wise woman on one end that she stands in the streets and she cries out to those that are simple and unlearned, that are passing by, and encourages them to, to do right, to live right, to turn to God, to exercise wisdom. And then he describes a wanton woman, a, a woman of ill repute that also stands out in the streets or at least stands out in her doorway and seeks to lure away those that are simple, those that are unlearned. And you know what the Bible says about that woman? It says that her steps lead down to hell. These two types of wisdom are crying out to us day in and day out. In your life and mine, don't think just because you're a believer that you can't make unwise decisions. I see believers make unwise decisions almost daily. Almost daily. Just because you're saved, set apart, sanctified, secured, and on your way to heaven does not mean you cannot make shipwreck of your life by making foolish decisions. The devil, listen, uh, the devil understands he cannot get our soul, but if he can get our steps, then he's done a lot in his mind. So he gives his basic characteristic, and then he gives a few other things. He mentions its benevolent characteristics. He says it's first pure, then, and he gives three things. He says it's peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. He describes first its motivation, it's peaceable. Heavenly wisdom seeks after peace. What the word peaceable means, it means disposed to peace. Heavenly wisdom does not seek after strife. I like the way Paul says it, as much as, uh, as much as in us is, let us live peaceably with all men, he said to the church at Rome. In other words, there are going to be people you cannot live peaceably with. 
But if we are not peaceable with them, it ought to be their fault, not ours. We shouldn't chase after. I've often said to people that, uh, uh, and this is true of a pastor in ministry, but it's true of every single believer, that we ought to hate conflict more than anything except compromise. Let me say that again. I want you to hear it. We ought to hate conflict more than anything except compromise. There are times when there must be conflict to avoid compromise. But if we can avoid compromise and conflict, we ought to do our best to do so. I'm just telling you what heavenly wisdom is. Well, I know we all like a fighter. I get it. Hey, listen, I I was raised up watching Westerns, right? Listen, I, I like to see Matt Dillon pile into a bunch of outlaws and start laying them out punch after punch. We all like a fighter. I get it. But heavenly wisdom is peaceable. And we ought to strive for peace as much as in us is. Not only do we see its motivation, but we see its moderation. It's gentle. It carries with it the idea of forbearance or patience or someone that will put the well-being or rights of another person before themselves. In other words, wisdom, one of the ways it pursues peace is by preferring others above itself. Heavenly wisdom doesn't seek to settle all accounts, right every wrong, set people straight, and get back at them. If your motivation, if your drive in life is to get back at people and give them what for, that's not heavenly wisdom. God one day will right every wrong. When you take vengeance, you're stealing from God. Because vengeance doesn't belong to you. Vengeance belongeth unto the Lord. I will repay. That's what the Lord said. To take vengeance into our own hands is to steal from God. And that's a foolish thing. Heavenly wisdom is gentle. And then it says it's easy to be entreated. We see it's mediation. It's approachable. It's approachable. Uh, one of the things that I have tried to strive for, especially in the last few years of pastoring, is to be easy to be entreated. Uh, I, I've, I've literally tried to change my disposition in the way that I, the way that I talk to people. I, I don't believe I was ever hard to approach to. I, I don't think, but, but I don't ever want anybody to feel that way. And, and I've tried to go out of my way in the way that I communicate. I'm talking about my disposition, the way I look at people, the inflection in my voice. I've tried to change so that people understand I'm somebody that's approachable. And that you can talk to me if there's an issue, you can come to me. It doesn't mean we'll agree. doesn't mean we'll be able to see eye to eye or work things out. But at least you can come to me. You can talk to me. I'm not somebody that's aloof. I'm not somebody that can't be gone to. You know, you see people in life sometimes that if you've got to deal with them, you just dread it. You think, man, I dread talking to them. You ever had a boss that was that way? If you had to tell them something that they wouldn't want to hear, you just dreaded it all day. Put your stomach in knots because you just you knew how it was going to be. There was going to be a blow up. You was going to get blamed, this, that, and the other. That's foolish. It's foolish to live that way because guess what? That means that eventually people will quit coming to you. <laughs> eventually people will start hiding things from you. <laughs> My pastor growing up was a godly man. and uh, But I do think this was maybe an area where he struggled in. And I often heard him make this statement. Well, I'm the last one to find out about anything. And, and, and I get it, man. As a pastor, sometimes you are. And some, uh, sometimes because people don't want to disappoint you or, or it's just easier to not have that conversation. But sometimes we're the last one to hear or we're the last one to know because we're the last one anyone wants to tell. We need to be easy to be entreated. And we can't account for other people's anxieties or fears. If people are going to just be too socially awkward and fearful to talk to you about something, you can't, you can't make them 
get over that fear, but we can ensure that we've done everything we can to be easy to be entreated, for people to be able to talk to us. So we see its benevolent characteristics, but then notice its bountiful characteristics. In the thoughts that it entertains, it says uh, that it is full of mercy. Full of mercy. Mercy is a wise attribute. Uh, judgment or justice is something that has its place. Don't misunderstand me. But mercy is always a wise thing. Wisdom is full of mercy. The story was told once of Napoleon uh, that there was a man that had on multiple occasions deserted from the army. And uh, he had done it once again. They had gotten him and they had uh, arrested him and they were getting ready to put him to death. And the man's mother came to Napoleon and uh, requested an audience with the emperor and cried out and said, I'm here to, to cry out for mercy for my son. And Napoleon said, ma'am, I'm sorry. He's, he's made one too many mistakes. He's done this before. Justice must be done. She said, I didn't come to ask for justice. I came to ask for mercy. And he said, he doesn't deserve mercy. And she said, if he did, it wouldn't be mercy. And the, the emperor couldn't resist her logic. And eventually Napoleon let the man free. Was he unwise? Well, in some things in life he was. But in that instance, I don't believe he was unwise. Wisdom is full of mercy. And not only that, in the things that espouses, good fruits, good works. It says not only is it full of mercy, but also of good fruits. Wisdom is full of wise behavior, wise actions. And I've got to hasten. Not only do we see its benevolent and bountiful characteristics, but its balanced characteristics. Uh, James says that it's without partiality. Uh, being a respecter of persons, he's already dealt with it, but he just reminds them once again that that's an unwise thing. It's a foolish thing. You know why? Because of the next statement. He says, without hypocrisy. Partiality will sooner or later make you a hypocrite. Because sooner or later, if you're partial to some but not to others, sooner or later, you'll have to go back on a decision you've made with one person that you won't make with another person. It'll make you a hypocrite. The only way to not be a hypocrite, at least in our interactions with others, is to be impartial. To treat every person exactly the same. Wisdom would suggest this. And then in verse 18, we see wisdom and its force. It says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. In other words, wisdom will manifest itself in peace. Now again, does that mean that you'll be able to live peaceable with all men? No. But it does mean this. Someone that's a brawler. That's, that is full of strife and cantankerous, and I've met people like that. Man, they had the truth, they just didn't know how to handle it. And there was constant turmoil in their life. Listen, if everywhere you turn there is conflict, maybe you ought to look at yourself. I don't mean that to be harsh, but there's one common denominator. If you can't have peace with anybody, it might not be them. That's all right. I don't expect very many people say amen to that. I know it hurts. It hurts me a little bit, too, to be honest with you. You can't get along with nobody. Now, listen, if you can't get along with somebody and can't nobody else get along with them, you might be wrong, but they might be as well. But if you can't get along with nobody, it might not be them. It might be you. You know, it's like the old story goes. You know, one out of three people has bad breath. So sniff the person to the right, sniff the person to the left. If they're fine, it's probably you. You're the common denominator. So we see wisdom and its course. And then we'll close with these verses in chapter 4. Uh, I believe we'll get finished. I know you don't believe me, but I believe we will. Look with me in chapter number 4, and uh, we'll begin by reading the first five verses. James says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? 
Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, that's strong preaching. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So he's talked about sin in the mouth, he's talked about sin in the mind, now he's going to talk about sin in the members. In other words, in our behavior, in our actions, sinful behavior. Not just in what we give our minds to, but what we give our members, what we give our appendages, what we give our body, our life, our actions to. And he begins, we see the first question, and that question is asked in verse number 1. So he takes for granted, maybe he's not taking it for granted, surely he knew these people, and maybe he had been given word, given uh, given information to the people that he was writing to, that uh, there was some conflict and some discord in their local bodies. So he says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Now this is a rhetorical question. The reason I know it's rhetorical is because he goes on to answer it. So he's not seeking for an answer, but he's wanting them to consider why they find conflict and discord at every turn. And he uses the term war. In fact, he uses it twice in the same verse. But he uses two different words for war. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? And that word for war literally has the idea of a conflict, of a conflict, of fighting, of strife. Uh, one of the things that uh, I love about our church is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of discord in it. I, we ain't perfect people, listen, and, and uh, if you're serving with God, and, and or if you're serving God with people and with the people of God, uh, you spend enough time around the people of God, there's going to be people get on your last nerve. There's, there's people that I know, and I wouldn't say names, but don't think it's you, <laughs> but there's people that, man, they can find that last nerve. I'm not talking about the second to last or the third to last, but they know where I keep that last nerve. And when they find it, they just... Like a trampoline, man. They just, I'm talking about like an Irishman, they just river dance all over it. I was talking to a fella and uh, he was uh, talking about conflict in the church and he made the statement, he said, I feel more at ease sometimes around atheists that I know that I do around the people of God because of all the discord and conflict that I've been around that I've experienced. And I said, well, I understand that. I said, I can tell you why that is because probably... If you're hanging out with atheists, you've made it clear that you're not going to talk about your Christianity and they're not going to talk about their atheism. And there ain't a whole lot to fuss and fight about when you're talking about TV and sports and stuff like that. But you get around the people of God and you open your heart to them and you serve with them. Uh, listen, let me tell you something. You want to see an opportunity for discord, work VBS. You get 60, 70, 80, 90 screaming kids running around. and You'll find out how short your fuse is. And you're dependent on people to do things and, and people aren't in their place or doing what they're supposed to be or something happens. I'm just saying the people of God serving together are in an environment where it's easy for there to be conflict and discord. That's why we need such grace. That's why only the Holy Ghost can keep a group of people like us together without us killing each other. So he's talking about wars and, and fightings, meaning literal conflicts. He says, come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members. And when he uses that term for war, it holds with it the idea of an entrenched or encamped army. In other words, he's saying this, the battles are happening because the armies are there. 
you, as long as you're just fighting the battles and never moving on the army, you're never going to see victory. Or you may have heard it this way. Well, they won the battle, but we'll win the war. Too often we fight the battles, but we never go after the war. We, we fight the outlying troops. We fight the scouts, the raiders, but we never go after the main body of the force. And where is that found? It's easy to look out at the world. It's easy to look down at the devil. It's easy to look around at other believers. But he says, you know where that's coming from? It's coming from you. It's coming from you. Where do those things come from? You're looking around trying to find it out. Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. One of the most profound verses in the entire word of God. The Proverbs writer said, only by pride cometh contention. Now, if he had said, by pride cometh contention, it wouldn't be that profound. If he had said, mostly by pride cometh contention, it wouldn't be as powerful. But he said, only by pride cometh contention. If there's a conflict, any conflict in life, somebody's pride is involved. The enemy that we have to fear most of all is the enemy within. He answers this question in verse number two. He says, this is why it's happening. You lust. Number one, you lust. (laughs) You desire things. He mentions their fleshly lust. He says, you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. A lot of the conflict in the local church is simply due to people not being satisfied with Jesus. If we were more satisfied with Christ, then we'd be less affected when we're dissatisfied with brethren. People are going to dissatisfy you. They're going to disappoint you. Uh, I was talking to the person that was talking about uh, being disappointed with uh, church and, and church conflicts and people are disappointed and made the statement. He said, man, I love I love your church here. I feel so welcome and so warm and everybody's been so kind. I looked him dead in the eyeball and I said this. You hang around long enough, these people will disappoint you. And you hang around long enough, I'll disappoint you. You hang around anyone long enough, they'll disappoint you. So dissatisfaction doesn't come from people disappointing us, because if it did, nobody would ever be satisfied. There wouldn't be a satisfied person in this world if our satisfaction had to be predicated upon people treating us well. Satisfaction doesn't come from other people treating us well. Satisfaction comes from the fact that the Lord treats us well, and he never fails. The reason is we desire things and then we don't get them. And we're disappointed and we're frustrated and things don't turn out the way that we had hoped. He describes their wars, their fleshly desires. He describes their wants, their fleshly desires. He describes their wars. He said the reason is because we're not satisfied with Jesus the way that we ought to be. If we'll get satisfied with him, it's not to say there will never be problems, but it is to say that if we'll get satisfied with him, a lot of our problems will be mitigated. Especially problems arising from our disappointment in others. People will disappoint you. And that's what I told this guy. I said, you know why people act like that? Because they're human. And that's why you act like that too. And that's why I act like that. Human beings, this is deep. You ready? People is just going to be people. Now listen, that's simple. But the day you really get it is the day you save yourself from a lot of heartache. When you can learn to quit being surprised at people being people, You've conquered many of the battles of life. The fact is, if we can get it straight that God is always God and people are always people, then we'll be able to walk that perfect tightrope between delusion and disillusion, 
between being completely disgusted with people all the time or being continuously duped by people all the time. When we just remember that men at their best are men and anything good that they do is simply a manifestation of God in them and that they have the propensity and proclivity to do wrong and to make mistakes and to mess up and that if you hang around them long enough, sooner or later they're going to disappoint you, then it'll help you to not despise them, not become a, a, a cynic, not, not become a skeptic or, or to scorn them, but also not put all your eggs in the basket of people in the way that they treat you. Because the one person that will never fail you is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you learn to get satisfied in Him, then you'll stay satisfied. He mentions, first off, as he describes why it happens, their fleshly lust, and then he mentions their faulty logic. He says, "...you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, cannot obtain." You fight in war, yet you have not, and this is why, because you ask not. Now, I don't think that's to imply that they were not asking. I think it's to imply that they were not asking the right person. Evidently, if they were fighting and warring with each other, there was probably some asking that, 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 was, uh, that occurred before the fighting and warring went on. I've known a few Baptists that went straight to the fighting and warring, but most of us stand at least enough on etiquette to ask for our way before we throw a tantrum. Am I right? So most of the time we at least ask for our way before we throw a tantrum. It's not they hadn't asked, they hadn't asked the right person. They had been asking for men, for other people, for individuals, for other believers to satisfy them. That couldn't happen. And so here's the problem. There was first off a failure to pray personally. He says, here's why you have not because you ask not. You're not asking the person that can answer, and that's the Lord. We spend a lot of time complaining about things to people that cannot change them. It's a great day, men, in your marriage when you realize that your wife is not complaining to you so that you can fix everything. I hate to tell you this, but she ain't got enough confidence in you to think you can fix anything. She's doing it because it feels good. That's why. She's doing it because she just wants to complain to somebody. She ain't a man. She ain't like you. She ain't going to go out and and hit the garage door with break her fist. She's going to complain to you, and it's your job to listen, not to fix. So often we we complain to people that can't fix it. Well, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. If they can bear your burdens and if they're willing to, by all means, go for it. But you know what's productive? Ask the person that can change things. And that's the Lord. The term ask here denotes the idea of asking for things as opposed to asking for someone to do something for you. And I like what uh, the commentator said here. Prayer is one of the laws of the universe like the laws of gravity or electricity or sound or magnetism or light. Prayer is not just a fundamental commandment of God to the believer. It is literally one of the means and mechanisms whereby God communicates with and interacts with this world. The same way that every occurrence, you know, this is one of the laws of thermodynamics, that every action has a a positive or negative reaction, right? That's a marital law too, but I won't talk about that. But uh, every action has a negative or positive reaction. Uh, you know, reaction to it. Uh, and everything you do before something occurs, before something transpires, it takes into account that law. Uh, well, in the same way, before God does anything, He takes into account the prayers of His people. And that doesn't mean that with our prayers we can just order God around like some sort of cosmic butler. But it does mean this, that prayer works. Prayer matters. Prayer changes things. James will say later on in this book that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it availeth much. 
If you don't think prayer works, then you're going to have to argue with Paul and Peter. You're going to have to argue with James. You're going to have to argue with uh, with Daniel. You're going to have to argue with David. You're going to have to argue with Abraham. You're going to have to argue with Moses. You're going to have to argue with pretty much every believer that had a real relationship with God in the Bible. Prayer works. And part of the reason that there's so much... Ooh. Yeah, I'll say it. Part of the reason there's so much conflict is we're not praying enough. We're trying, we're trying to accomplish our desires through manipulation, through coercion, through politics, instead of through prayer. A praying church will be a peaceful church. So I'm frustrated with people. Channel it into prayer. Tell God about it. He'll always listen. And he may do something about it too. Their failure to pray personally. And then their failure to pray properly. I can hear some of them saying, now James, that's not true. I pray. I pray every day. Okay, you're praying, and you're still not satisfied? Well, here must be what's going on. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lust. The term amiss literally means depraved. In other words, he's saying it ain't that you ain't praying, it's that there's something wrong with what you're praying. Now remember, the, the term ask here has the idea, and there are two words for ask. And one of them has the idea of asking a person to do something, and another has the idea of asking for an object. Like the difference being if you said, hey, please pass me that cornbread, or if you said, hey, can I have that cornbread? Two different ideas. And the term ask in here has the idea of asking for something. And sometimes we don't receive because what we're asking for is not what we need. I promise you this, every way in which God answers prayer is an expression of his mercy and grace. God has never done anything out of spite. Never. There's never been a single thing God has withheld from you out of spite. There's never been a single thing God has given you out of spite. Every every communication of God with a believer is done out of his merciful, loving kindness. Said, but preacher, sometimes he gives me things I don't want. Well, I never said he wouldn't give you things you don't want. But he'll always give you what you need. If you're not praying properly, and I could go down a list of some things of what it means to pray properly, but let's just leave it at this for time's sake. And sometimes if we're not getting what we're praying for, we need to change what we're praying for. Uh, Paul three times asked the Lord, Lord, remove this thorn from my flesh. Finally, God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul said, all right, I will therefore glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said, I'll quit asking because God made it clear that I'm better off with this thorn than without it. So I'll praise God for the thorn, and I'll go ahead and serve God with the thorn, and I'll go ahead and pray about something else. I'm not trying to get you to give up on the things you're praying for. The threefold formula in the Bible is what? Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. In other words, the first thing that it starts with is ask. You want something? Ask for it. You want a new car? Ask God for it. Hey, I ain't Creflo Dollar. I ain't going to promise you he's going to give it to you. But go ahead and ask him for it. Uh, that, it's a prayer he can't answer if you don't pray it. Let's go ahead and ask him for it. So a preacher, I asked him for it. He didn't give it to me. All right, we'll seek it out and try to find out why. Could be you can't afford the payment. Could be you ought not be driving that fast. Could be God wants to do some talking with you while you're walking or riding a bicycle. I don't know, but seek it out. And if you can't find any peace about it, if God can't give you peace to let it go, then just keep knocking until it's opened unto you. I'm not saying give up on prayer. 
But I'm saying if you're asking amiss and God's made it clear what you're asking for, I'm not going to give you. Don't get discouraged. Don't get frustrated. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on prayer. Just ask the right thing, not the wrong thing. He talks about their faulty logic. And then finally he talks about their fatal liaisons. He says, this is strong, man. This is leaded. This isn't unleaded. Verse 4, he says, we see their worldliness exposed. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. I can see him going, whoa, wait a minute now. That escalated. But then he explains what he means. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He's not talking about physical adultery. There may have been some that were guilty of it in that group, but that's not what he's talking about. He's instead talking about spiritual adultery. In other words, what he's saying is this. Whenever we're saved, we are married unto Christ. That's what Paul said in the book of Romans. We're married unto another, even unto Christ. And when we are flirting with and friendly with the world, we're committing spiritual adultery. We're committing fornication of a spiritual sort. And he says, why should it surprise you if your prayers ain't getting answered, if you're committing adultery on God? I'll tell you this, I would not be very, very apt to give anything to my spouse if they were being unfaithful to me. I probably wouldn't be apt to answer what they say to me. I probably wouldn't be apt to provide for them. I probably wouldn't be apt to do anything kind for them. If they asked me to pass a salt shaker, I'd probably throw it at them. Now, I'm not saying God's going to do that to you, but I am saying this. Why should it shock us that that worldly relationships would disrupt our communion and fellowship with God? Could be God ain't answering your prayer because he's trying to get your attention. You say, but preacher, I don't know if there's anything wrong in my list. I ain't the Holy Ghost. Talk to God. He can make clear to you if there's something wrong in your life. But I am saying if you can't come up with any other answer, maybe you ought to look at yourself. Maybe you ought to say, Lord, is there anything in my life? If there's not, then hey, just keep knocking. But don't be surprised as to assume that there could be nothing God would be dealing with you about. Instead, open your heart to the possibility that there is. Finally, in verse 5, we see the further question. And I'm going to have to end here. Somebody took the batteries out of that clock back there, I think. So either that or I'm going blind. It says in verse number 5, Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? This is an interesting verse. And I'll tell you why. Because we are not told who the spirit is. Some people talk about the uppercase, the lowercase S's. I I believe there are a lot of places in the Bible where, I believe when the translators put an uppercase S, they were most definitely speaking of the Spirit of God. But I believe there are probably some places where there are some lowercase S's where if you look at the context, it could be speaking of the Spirit of God or an application could be made to it, certainly. And there's some debate about what the Spirit is here. I'll tell you how mostly I've heard it preached, and I tend to agree with this, is that it's talking about the Spirit of God. And that it is saying that the Spirit of God is envious towards our own consecration and sanctification. In other words, you can't live wrong without the Spirit of God having something to say about it. Another application that could be made is talking about the Spirit, meaning the spiritual man, the new man. That part of us that has been awakened unto God. And certainly it could be said that 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 new man, that spiritual man... Uh, he's not going to be satisfied if you're living in sin. Listen, if you're a child of God, you will be uncomfortable in sin. You will be. 
I'm not saying you're. I, I'm not saying a, sin, a, a saint can't backslide. I'm not saying a Christian can't backslide. I've known too many Baptists to believe a Christian can't backslide. But I am saying you ain't going to be satisfied in your backslidden condition. And then some people would suggest he's talking about the spirit of man. And that it's a polar opposite understanding. In other words, it's saying this, that the spirit of man lusteth to envy. It is the natural condition and propensity of man to lust after things, to want, to desire, to not be satisfied. And the more we feed the natural man, the more unsatisfied we're going to be. Like a teenager. You feed them and feed them and feed them and they never get full. That's how the natural man is. You think that if you sin, that's going to satisfy you. But it never does. You always want to sin more. You always want to go a step further. Like, like people on drugs, like an addict. They always think the next hit's going to satisfy them, but it doesn't. It just leads to the one after that. The one after that. And the one after that. At the end of the day, there's no satisfaction found in self. There's no satisfaction found in other believers and their behavior. Satisfaction is found only in walking with God. Satisfaction is found only in living for the Lord. There and there alone.